0: All right, today we are in um, Acts chapter 5, so if you want to go there, I encourage you to get your Bible. Do you guys know that the Colossae app also has a Bible in it? Just FYI, if you play around and find it, um, at the bottom of the app there's a menu, and in there you can find tools, and there's a Bible in there as well. I'm going to read from the NIV, and uh, we are going to cover primarily the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So, let me pray. Father, we're grateful that we can always meet you in the scriptures, that you, you, uh, you live there, that your Holy Spirit is there, and that when we read and when we think and meditate and, and ask you, you teach us, and so we ask you to teach us now. Let us understand the important, critical message that you have in here, we pray. Uh, help us obey What you want us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we need a little bit of backstory. So, I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 32. So, and we've been here before all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Kind of a utopian experience. So all of the people, all of the Christians that were together were taking care of each other, and, and everybody was doing great. And they were being ministered to by one another. And the leadership, notice in, in particular, was being filled with power. And they were preaching that Jesus Christ was alive from the dead. And then, here's a particular thing that happened. It says, From time to time, those who owned land and houses would sell them. They would bring the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levi from Cyprus, uh, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, Uh, the believers at this time didn't have much of an eschatology about what was to happen now. They only knew that Jesus had ascended out of their sight and they knew from the scriptures that he was now seated in the heavens in another dimension with the Father in a spiritual dimension, an invisible dimension and that's where Jesus was reigning and the believers were left to wait for his return with no schedule, with no time. In fact, the apostles even asked When Jesus was saying goodbye to them, you know, is it now? Are you going to come now and set up your kingdom? So they had no idea. So they're still living with this giant question of when does Jesus come back? And when does the next phase of the work of God come into being? This phase where life as we know it will change dramatically. And so this idea of needing to save or own property for retirement or for the future There was no sense that was necessary anymore. So there was this radical economic change for the whole church that said, hey, we're not waiting for 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Let's just make life um, good for everyone now. And so they were tending to meet together every week, even daily. And they were selling their assets that were just for savings or for the future or for inheritance and using the money today for everyone to be debt free and to be stress-free, and to be fed, and to be cared for. It sounds pretty idyllic, right? I mean, Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an economic system like, like the Old Testament had, where every seven years some changes were made, and then every 50 years you did this complete reorg of your money, where you all got back the inheritance that you were given from day one as a family, and we just started over. It was an economy like Monopoly, where you play the game... And some of you do really well and you buy property and you make thousands of dollars and some of you are poor and you get mad and quit early. And then, but an hour later you say, okay, let's start over again. Here's your $500 and here's your three properties and you start over. That was literally the economy of the Old Testament that God intended. It's amazing, right? I mean, wouldn't it be great to start over every, not 50 years for us, I'd say every 10 years. Yeah. Things go south way too fast now. But that would be that's kind of the way the Christians were living. Like, hey, you know what? As far as we know, there is no earthly future. Let's just take a break from the stress and the poorness and the richness, and let's be one big happy family. Sounds amazing, right? That's what they were doing. And now we get down to this particular story of a man named Joseph, otherwise known as Barnabas. This is probably the Barnabas that we're going to read about going forward in the rest of Acts. Uh, son of encouragement. I think that's a great phrase you should use now when you get frustrated Ah, son of encouragement (laughs) sounds like a good thing to say right so joseph did this in particular and now here's another story about another man and his wife who want to do the same thing chapter 5 verse 1 now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property With his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it, again, at the apostles' feet. So this is a complete surrender of the asset to the church. We give this up. We give it to God. We put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, and this is, Peter was given a word of knowledge here. So no one told him except the Holy Spirit, Here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. This is what this man has done. So Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? So God has told, and the Holy Spirit has said to Peter, this man is is lying to you. He's telling you he sold his property for... $2,000, $2,000, but he didn't. So Peter shares this word of knowledge, and he says, didn't this belong to you before you sold it? And after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal? Disposable? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to humans, but you have lied to God. All right, Confrontation. Yikes. What's going to happen? When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Wow. That's harsh. He fell down and died. He lied and he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and they wrapped up his body and carried him out and they buried him. No funeral, no memorial, just lie, die, and bury. About three hours later, his wife came in, not even knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her her beside her husband. Great fear, notice the repetition, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What's going on? It seems as though we've just entered this era of grace and forgiveness and Jesus has covered sin and we are now free and the penalty of death for our sins is gone and now we have two people that are dead because of their sin. Wow, what's happening? I don't know all the answers to that question. But I want to share with you a couple of answers that I have that I think are important. And maybe beyond that, the Spirit will give us a word of knowledge this morning and help us understand more. But here's what I do understand. And I think this is really worthwhile. Um, We as humans have a hard time with things that seem opposite to us. Uh, And we're always leaning toward one side or the other. And that's the whole reason we have two-party politics. It's the reason that there's two sides to so many theological issues. It's the reason why in your household, if you were attracted to an opposite, there are certain tensions in your home all the time. Because one of you prefers one way, and one of you prefers another. One of you has things that you feel like are more important that you fight for, and the other one has complementary things that they feel is important and they fight for. And so we have these kinds of tensions. And one of the tensions that is really difficult for us to maintain as humans is the tension between freedom in Christ and the holiness of God. And we tend to go one way or the other. And so there have been seasons. I know when I was a young man, the season in our family was a season of great knowledge of the fear of God and very little knowledge of the freedom and the grace of God. So I grew up in my own mind and in the teaching of my church under a lot of fear. And I was really afraid to sin. And as a young man, maybe that wasn't a bad thing. Because <laughs> it kept me out of a lot of trouble. <clears throat> but it, it did leave me in fear a lot. And I, I, I was afraid of, am I really saved? Because I'm not. I'm, I'm going to go to hell. And with that whole understanding. And then uh, in my younger adult years, I began to understand much more of the grace of God. And the fact that God was not trying to scare me out of hell but he was trying to invite me into a relationship with him. And that's really what he's about. And so I began to learn much more about grace and love and hope and truth and kind of swung that way. And, and what I, one thing I know the Holy Spirit is doing here is, is helping the church not swing too far towards a sense of carelessness or sloppiness or even selfishness. Uh, and I believe that there is often in our lives and in the church this struggle between the control of the Holy Spirit and the control of broken humanity. And so when God wants to lead and we make a covenant with him to lead, he is going to require a high level of sacredness and respect around this new relationship where he's leading if you think about if you're married when you were first married, there probably was a really high degree of respect that you had for your spouse. And you were very careful with your words. And you were very gracious and kind. And you just realized, this is amazing. that I, you know, For me, this is amazing. I have this woman who has entrusted herself to me for the rest of her life. Wow. And I, and I really took care of that idea. And I realized this was a sacred thing. And it was valuable, and I was gentle with it, and I was careful with it. But the old saying is true that familiarity breeds what? Contempt. When you get to know a situation or a person or a relationship too well, you get sloppy. And the value of that relationship diminishes greatly. And you don't care, and you even kind of poke at it, and you're careless with it. And, you know, we hopefully you're not doing that with your wife or husband now, but maybe you have those times. And God is wanting to set us free from being sloppy in our relationship with him. So if you think of the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament, he established a covenant, and then he came down in tremendous power and thunder and lightning and smoke and fire, all to say, I am a powerful God, and I can do all the things I promised to do with you. I can lead you to be a brand new nation with new laws that are loving and amazing where we play monopoly and then we put everything away and start over again. I can do all that for you, but I need you to respect my leadership. I need you to respect who I am and what I'm doing. And as Israel began to disrespect God, he began to draw back. These are God's two options. If we give up respect for the leadership of God, he either moves away or he becomes dangerous. Those are the two options. He either moves away or he becomes dangerous. And so you think of uh, he, had a, he had appointed some priests. He says, Moses and Aaron are my guys. The Levites are my guys. And some other guys thought, no, I want to be in leadership. I, don't, I want to take their place. I'm going to take authority. So they got the paraphernalia of priests and they lit some fires. And God burned them up and destroyed them. And everyone who was a part of that to say, If I'm going to be leading, I need you to respect my leadership and what I'm asking of you. But if you're not going to respect what I'm doing, I'm going to have to back away. I will not be the God of the sloppy. (laughs) I will not be the God of carelessness. I will not be the God of mediocrity. I will not be the God of whatever. I will only be the God of beauty and of power, and of love, and of faith, and of hope. And so I believe we have here a demonstration of God saying, once again, I am in authority, and you see my authority in the apostles, and we're doing wonders and miracles, and love is happening in the body, and faith is happening in the body, and hope is happening, and I need you to respect my authority. And Ananias and Sapphira didn't respect it. They said, here's an opportunity for us to have it both ways. We're going to tell everyone we sold this piece of property just like Joseph Barnabas, and we're giving it all to the church. Look at us. But they also kept some back. And the point wasn't that God is asking for 100% of their money. What was God asking for? Honesty. He says, this property was yours to keep or give. That's not my issue. When you sold it, you got cash for it. The cash was yours to keep or give. I'm not demanding your cash. But when you come before the apostles and you say to them, we have sold a piece of property and we are now giving to you all that it is as a sacrifice to God, God says, no, I will not tolerate that lie. I will not tolerate that dishonesty. It starts there and then it just increases and increases and everyone runs around looking for their own piece of glory and looking for their own way to create their own kingdom within the kingdom of God. And God will not share his kingdom. And so he he takes this stand and he says, I can't tolerate that. And he makes an example not only for the church in Jerusalem but for the rest of the history of the church to say this is how critical it is for me. And so in that economy, for me, there's a little bit of understanding that if he sacrificed the life of one man and one woman for the rest of the world going forward to, to help us understand, maybe that helps us understand the cost of these two losing their lives. I don't know. That, that's God's thing. And I have to respect what he does. Let's keep reading, and then I'll talk about what this means for us. Verse 11 of chapter 5 says, Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets laid them on beds and the mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So what we see here is a restoration of the authority of God, and so the power continues to be present, and this amazing work continues to happen. What does this mean for us? I believe that we regularly experience a minimum of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God in our lives because of natural carelessness and natural minimal respect for God and what he does and a a minimal obedience to the scriptures that we have become very familiar and there's a little bit of contempt there. And so there's a lot of our own will going on and a lot of our own life being lived and and God has graciously stepped back a little bit so that we can live <clears throat> but as we talk about and as we pray toward this ask that God would come closer to us as a church that we would be filled more with the holy spirit that we would experience more of the power of God to change us and to change other people, that we need to um, realize this truth and commit to one another to move to a higher level of respect for God and for people. If we want God to come closer, we've got to give him that space and give him that respect and that reverence and that honor to come closer. Does Does that make sense? Do you resonate with that idea? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, okay. Something to think about for sure. But here's what I think that means. We, um, I know God would love for us to value one another more highly than we do. I think there's a level of casualness, and I think in in some ways we could kind of take or leave each other a little bit. Like, you know, there's a lot of us don't know a lot of us in the room, but we've been meeting for one, two, or even three years. Um, And I think God calls us to not be that disassociated, but actually to be more connected, to be more aware. Um, I think, too, that we, because we don't know each other very well, we make some conclusions about who's who and about how valuable one person is than over another person in the group. And, and maybe because we depend on each other without being deeply related to each other, like in kids' ministry, you, you depend on some people you barely know to take care of your kids. But in that lack of relationship and that dependence, it would be easy to assess who you like or don't like watching your kids or how well they do it. But, I, but in there, I think there can be a disrespect for that person as a child of God who's giving up a Sunday to take care of our children so that we can be together and we can learn. And that could be, I think, one of these places where there's a lack of respect and reverence for people created in God, God's image who we don't yet know very well. Uh, we're not valuing them maybe the way that we need to. I would say, too... <clears throat> the space in which we worship is as sacred as we believe it is. So if we come together with a bit of a sense of, you know, do we see this as a memorial or as a remembrance uh, with some nice things that we can do and a spot that is kind of relaxing and comfortable? Or Or do we have faith that God would come really close as we worship him and believe and listen and wait and would actually do some really significant, like life-giving, healing, changing things, and not leave us the way we are, week to week. You know, do we believe that, and do we do we want that? And if we believe it, and if we want it, that calls for a certain degree of respect in the way that we show up. That I sh- that we show up ready. Um, that we show up having gotten our hearts in a place of reverence and, and peace, you know, and, and even, even something as small as, as showing up on time. Um, if, if this is a valuable time and we're meeting God here, uh, why be 10 minutes late for God? <laughs> and I, this is an awkward conversation to have, but I want to make a connection between small choices and attitudes and the church and the power of God and what God wants to do. I think in some ways we miss the blessing of God because of the smallest things. Like I lied about how much I paid for some property. Seems small in what happened. But um, I so believe in what I'm saying that I just want to ask you, what does it look like for you to respect the leadership of God? and to respect the power of the Holy Spirit and to respect the presence of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it look like? And on the one hand, I want to warn against, I don't think it looks like heavy somberness and dourness and, you know, coming in like this and just, oh God, please don't be mad. You know, that's not what we're talking about. I think that within the church, there's a place for lightheartedness and humor and joy. But I think there's also a place to say, why do we tolerate endless anxiety in our own lives? Uh, Why do we tolerate a broken relationship? You know, is there someone in this congregation who you're starting to have a less than healthy relationship? And do you go week to week leaving it that way? Because I think the scriptures say... Don't do that. Jesus said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So he has a tolerance of less than 24 hours for a broken relationship. But have you been in a church or a community or are you in a relationship where you tolerate days and days and now weeks and months and years of brokenness and unhealth and bitterness? Gosh, I don't think we have the freedom for that. I think if we respect God and we want the leadership of Jesus to be strong and present, we have to say no. I, I need to get reconciled. I need to apologize. I need to clarify this relationship isn't right and not tolerate that brokenness. Bottom line, what I'm asking us to consider is, do we all have a trail of little misses in relationships and moments where we've lost respect for God and for other people and even for ourselves. And now we have just this trail of tears, (laughs) of brokenness, and we're living a much smaller life than we ought to live and a much less joyful and a much less peaceful life and a much less God-inspired and God-led life than God is calling us to. And is it possible that through the Holy Spirit, God is inviting us To not put up with that, but to respect ourselves, and to respect our God, and to respect others, believers and non-believers, and to respect a day, and to say, what if I live today in fullness of joy, and peace, and fun, and life, rather than in the grayness of bitterness, and anxiety, and broken relationships, and fears? We have the choice. No one is making us live in bitterness. No one is making us live in busyness. No one is making us live in grayness. The choice is ours. Jesus said, Here I am. I did all the work. I died. I came back to life. I'm Messiah and I'm King. And if you'll follow me and if you'll let me lead your family and your life, I want it to be full. I want it to be full of respect and full of joy and full of hope and full of life. Now, I've kind of described two extremes, and I know we're all in the middle. (laughs) We're not failing, and we're not miserable, and on the verge of suicide, I hope. And we're not killing it. We're somewhere in between. But this is the beauty of church and the beauty of the community of God is that we can agree together to say, yeah, let's not stay here. Let's not just keep piddling around with life, and contempt and familiarity. Let's move on. Let's move on to a purer set of relationships. Let's move on to a deeper experience of worship. Let's move on to powerful prayer that leads to powerful change in our lives. This is the call of Acts chapter 5.